You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. So hi everyone and welcome once again back to our show, Changing Reality. If you guys are returning as our audience again, we appreciate each and every single one of you who are tuning in, who've enjoyed the stories, and who are back with us again for another amazing episode. If this is your first time tuning in, where have you been all our lives? We're finally able to meet you. Thank you for coming as well. For you who may not be so familiar with the show, Changing Reality is a show where we get to feature phenomenal people from all walks of life who are in essence changing their own reality and through this show we'll be hanging out and interviewing everyone from social change makers entrepreneurs business owners industry pioneers to even artists musicians tops executives and inspiring individuals from all across the, all across the world and even here on the Penn campus who have been doing phenomenal things and the idea is that by hearing these inspiring stories on how they are changing their reality we get to in a way be inspired by ourselves in a sense and figure out the little nuggets of wisdom from their journeys that we can apply to shorten our own learning curves, to help us chart our own courses, and to hopefully replicate some of their successes in our day-to-day lives, discovering who we are, what we want to do, and how we can create that reality for ourselves. And I wanted to do this show simply because I feel like there are a lot of people out there who do phenomenal things and make waves in the lives of those around them. And I'm passionate about uncovering those stories to others in a way so that stories can uh, spread the brilliance and the learnings and the amazing messages these people have in a way that not only is long lasting, but is more impactful than anything else out there. And to show you how powerful I found those, the kind of beauty of stories, how powerful stories have been in my own life. Stories have been the foundation of everything that I've done. Personally, I actually founded and run a youth movement called Ascendance back at home in Malaysia, where I'm from, that today collaborates not just with our Malaysian Ministry of Education, but works with education partners in 28 countries to help any student who wants to change their reality have an alternative platform for them to try things out. So we work with students from elementary all the way up to college through various sessions, programs, experiential learning activities, and so much more where they can use these things to discover their passion, learn about themselves and the world around them, and at the same time start their own careers while they're still in school. It has meaningful, meaningful impact not just on themselves, but on those around them as well. And to date, we've been fortunate to work with over 35,000 students, 970 communities, and as I said, from 28 different countries, enabling everyday students and incubating countless number of social impact projects, student-run initiatives, and social enterprises run by students as young as 8 to 25 years old. And the basis of all of this has been stories. It's been kind individuals who've been willing to share their thoughts, share their time, share their expertise so that others may be able to learn and replicate it. So similarly, I hope that this show is that same platform for you so that through these stories, through these journeys, you can figure out your own path. You can go out there and do phenomenal things as well. And if there's anything specific that you want to talk about, any specific industry, specific uh, experience, specific challenge that you are going through, let us know in the comments below. And we'll try to take as many of them as we can so that we can hopefully cover all the areas that you want to know about to change your reality as well. So without further ado, let's move on to our episode of today. Today we have with us a leader in the world of blockchain. 
he is not only the director and head of blockchain partnerships at Mastercard, but he's a former VP of digital partnerships and investments at BNY Mellon. He is also very, very fun, a Wharton MBA graduate who today serves as a teacher assistant to Professor Kevin Warbach in his Economics of Blockchain and Digital Assets course, which for all of you who do not know is Wharton's inaugural blockchain and digital assets course. So as TA uh, in this amazing and phenomenal course, he actually is responsible for 80 executive education students and creating their learning journeys. During his time as a Wharton MBA student, he was also extremely involved on the many different things on campus that today uh, influence the blockchain scene here as well. He served as the VP of Alumni Relations at the FinTech Club. He was the VP of Career Tracks at Penn Blockchain Club and was also a contributor to the Wharton FinTech podcast. So without further ado, let's meet an amazing individual who has not only helped create the path for so many out there to learn about these things, but have been an influential figure here on campus itself, setting the path for the rest of us. So without further ado, let's welcome our phenomenal speaker onto our virtual stage. Hello, how are you today? Good, good, doing super well. How are you, Harsha? Great, so I think it's evening for you, it's morning for me, so morning is always the worst part of the day, but hopefully you're okay. How, or how are you in a sense? How, like, I know that you recently had this amazing role uh, that you started. I shall not talk too much about it, but I know it's a lot of fun. So hopefully your days are relaxed and exciting and challenging. Was today a good day at work? Yeah, yeah. No, it was a great day. Um, and also excited to be part of the uh, Wharton's Economics of Blockchain and Digital Assets class. Um, it's just about, yeah, we just about started our fourth semester. Um, so that's fun wow. to do on the side as well and keep connected to the campus, to the folks over there. Uh, as well as just educate people about this field that I really enjoy. That's amazing in a sense. Did you take this course when you were an MBA student as well? Like, is that how you got into becoming the TA for it? Yeah, so there actually was uh, an initial couple of classes on blockchain. I didn't strictly take them, uh, but I actually researched with Professor Warbach. Uh, he's a well-known authority in the field. You know, you can look at him uh, at a lot of the testimonies in front of Congress with all these crypto leaders, billionaires, and, and the like. Uh, he's also worked a lot on helping develop the internet along with the Bill Clinton administration itself. So in 93, 94, he was a leader in that. And so I had the privilege actually of working with him uh, on doing a little bit of research about the governance of how blockchain networks work while on campus. And so I think, you know, about six months ago, seven months ago, he reached out to a few folks who were involved with the Penn blockchain community uh, folks who we worked with before uh, and invited us to tutor and help one of his classes as teaching assistants. So yeah, it's a fun course. Um, I get asked all sorts of interesting questions. Um, I also get to learn more about different industries because I view this as a technology uh, that spans multiple different uh, realms, multiple different expertises. And so it's it's I'm very lucky to do this in my spare time right now uh, and continue my relationship with Ben as well as with Professor Warbeck and the blockchain community. That's amazing in a sense. Before we jump right into like the meat of the interview, I have to ask, what is the one thing that you feel is different about sitting in kind of the, the teacher's side of the classroom compared to being a student? What's the one thing we don't see or the thing that we don't get that you realized uh, was a bit different from the other side of the class? Yeah, um, I think one interesting thing is actually deadlines. 
So uh, there's a very strict deadline, I think, for the class. It says that all the assignments come in at, you know, I think 11 p.m. on a Sunday. Um, mm. And it's not like I'm just sitting there waiting for people at like 11.01 and closing a gate, right? And so I think at the executive MBA level, uh, things are a little bit more forgiving. I know at the undergrad level and perhaps even at some grad levels, discipline and submitting assignments on time and all of those kind of things are, you know, the paramount. Um, but it's actually interesting when folks submit something five minutes late and they ask for some kind of extension. They're like, don't cut my grade. Uh, it's just an interesting phenomenon to be on the other side. And, you know, uh, you're obviously grading the class over the course of the next week. Um, and so I think that that's, yeah, I've always been a little bit more of a, like a lenient person in general, uh, but it's a fun way just to see that play out on the other side too. Trust me, like I've stressed about, I don't know if you've done this at, as well at school, like stressed about like submitting it like one minute before the deadline, not one minute after. Um, I think there's something to be said about that too, right? But learning that discipline in one's early years. So. No, definitely, definitely. And and I agree with the deadlines. Sometimes you know it's like midnight and then you I know that nobody's standing there at midnight going like it's it's over, nothing is done. But at the same time, I think the anxiety is there. And mm -hmm. I and I during the pandemic, especially when everything was virtual, I lived halfway across the world. So there was a twelve hour time zone difference. And it was and I remember during daylight savings time, I forgot that I didn't even know that there was a like that was a thing because again oh, I've no never way. Time. yeah so then the whole like hour got adjusted i was like why am i late like i like i should be on time then they're like no the clock just changed like the the whole like time zone just shifted i was like what so like okay i i, I and my, my lecture is really forgiving on that so so like luckily uh, on that side but i was like hmm <laughs> like hmm, that's a very unique problem that i never really thought about until it actually happened so yeah i'll tell you something funny actually so my birthday is march 13th so many oh. years, my birthday is only 23 hours. So could be worse, I guess. Oh, that is that is so much worse than me. Oh, my God. We'll have to make sure that we, you, you accumulate the extra hours. And then maybe every 24 years, you can celebrate an extra day in a sense. And just be like, today's yeah. birthday part two. <laughs> but no, very, very cool. That's a good fact. Happy belated three months late birthday. Um, yeah. Yeah. And we'll make sure next time the the time changes we think of you as well uh jumping into your 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 story in a sense you come from some place which also does not notice daylight savings time i know but <laughs> i think you're from india you traveled to dubai you lived in dubai as a kid and then eventually you moved here to the us you today work in something that is so futuristic something that is really at the cusp of innovation in this in this whole blockchain and, and kind of uh, fintech world how I'm, I'm very curious to how you started learning about these things. Was it something that was always ingrained when you were a kid who was traveling across countries? Was this something you saw? Or was this something you discovered much later? Tell us about your, your early days in a sense. Were all of the lost and confused undergrads right in being lost and confused? Or should they have a master plan like you possibly did when you were in school in a sense? Right. Now that, that's a really good question. Uh, but just to preface the whole thing, you know, I think it's okay to keep asking questions, to keep reinventing oneself. Um, I don't see any harm in doing that, you know, when you're 20, 30, 40, 50, 60. Um, I think the ability to learn new things, to try something different is always there within us. And I encourage everyone to strongly go for, uh, to, to shoot for the stars uh, and, and try and, uh, you know, back themselves and believe in themselves and do whatever they feel is right. Um, so just by way of background, yeah, I was born in the States uh, and then moved to Hong Kong. 
my parents were in actually both uh, my dad and my mom uh, were both in finance for a few years. My dad actually spent his whole career working in finance at banks. Uh, my mom worked in IT uh, for a lot of different companies, including a large aluminum smelter in Dubai for the most part. And so I kept moving along because uh, finance is a very, very global field, as I'm sure a lot of your classmates also enter the finance field. Uh, they're banks all over the world, they're fintechs, they're card networks, you know, they're all sorts of different companies uh, and great opportunities within the sector to learn and grow. Uh, there's a lot of mentorship, a lot of things that you can pick up from your peers, informal as well as informal training. So, you know, I think it's, it's actually quite a good field to enter um, right after school. There's a lot of opportunity in a lot of different ways to try. Uh, a lot of different people also enter the field. Some people are very analytical. They could go into equity research. Other folks are relationship managers. And so no two days are the same because the markets move so much and change, as well as the economy as well as individual theories of finance as to what dominates. Uh, you know, you could have the efficient market hypothesis uh, dominating at one time. You could have things like uh, the sharp ratios involved with that. Uh, but then you could have uh, something around CAPE and other longer term price to earnings uh, theories going about. And you could have something like crypto, uh, where a lot of it's just based on speculation. Uh, the theories are being built about it now, but it's a 10-year asset class, unlike equities, which are probably three, 400 years old. So to that end, uh, we were all finance folks. Um, you know, my both my parents were in finance. Um, my dad was working at different roles uh, in Hong Kong uh, with foreign banks. And then uh, Hong Kong was being handed over. And I think that presented a lot of uncertainty to a lot of expats living in Hong Kong as it did with a lot of folks just living as residents too, right? And so uh, my family were Indian origin. And so we went back to India, uh, to Mumbai and uh, started life back over there. And so for a few years, uh, we were in Bombay and then we heard about this amazing city uh, full of expats, full of opportunity coming up named Dubai. And so from there, um, you know, we moved on to Dubai and I spent a lot of my middle school, in fact, the whole of my middle school uh, and my high school in Dubai. Uh, it was actually an Indian school. So we were given the same, it was the first Indian curriculum school uh, called ICSC outside of India. They would FedEx our papers uh, from the exam to India the same day, the same way as though you were living in the same city and just crossing each other. Uh, and so it was a very interesting experience doing that. Dubai is a very multicultural place, um, but I feel very lucky, to be honest, to have gone to an Indian school and learned a lot more about my cultural heritage, spoke a few languages uh, while I was there. Um, and then, yeah, come on to the States. That's so right. States was, you go ahead. Sorry. No. Yeah, so States was a fairly big step up um, because I'd never seen snow. Uh, this was 2006, 2007, I guess, when I made my decision. Uh, to pick colleges in the US, there was really not that much on the internet back then. Like, I don't think YouTube, I think YouTube was probably built in 2007. Um, there was very few forums online. And so I actually made a lot of decisions without you know, even knowing that Michigan had a football school. I had no idea that Michigan was a state as well as a school. I just saw it on a bunch of lists. Uh, There's no concept of really campus visits. So I visited the state of Michigan when I visited the school. And uh, really had a fun four years over there. So I was always on the pre-med track. Uh, so I studied biomedical engineering, and that's what I took as a major, and then switched things um, 
to your point, I guess, uh, midway, as I saw good opportunities within other kinds of engineering. No, I think it's a brilliant story. And I think finance is literally in your blood, in a sense, from, from the story of like your parents and all of that. From your point of view, in a sense, what do you think was, was one or two very influencing factors in you deciding what you want to do? Because I feel like this is something that we don't realize when we're making decisions like, oh, I, yeah. I'm going to do this, this, this. It always feels like we, we are the original thinker in this. And then only later we realize, oh, I, I was actually influenced by this person in my life or, or, or from this particular environment. Do you think it was something like if, if any influencing factors in your life, was it based on a, the place you grew up or spent most time growing up in, the school, the, the either of your parents, the, the friends, the people? What do you think shaped your trajectory now looking back uh, when, yeah. you, when you think about your, your childhood and your early college years? I really enjoyed science and math. I mean, it was really appealing to me to learn how the body works, how chemicals work, how sunlight works, how light itself works, right? So it, it was so unbelievable, this opportunity to be in this era where we have such a strong understanding of this field, and yet we're pushing limits every day, right? There's so much advanced technology that's out there um, that we're on the cusp of innovating. I don't think a lot of them are perfected yet, right? You have things like autonomous vehicles, 5G, IoT, 3D printing. Um, you have all sorts of renewable energy. You know, we're looking at space travel right now as well. And so I think there's a lot of very interesting tech that's out there. And even though I'm not necessarily the person who stands outside or sleeps outside an iPhone store or like is abreast of all the latest developments in the tech sector, in general, math and science and the technical side of things interest me. So it really made sense for me. I mean, bio is my favorite subject in school. Yes. Uh, I think that being a doctor, is that the same for you as well? No, bio is my favorite subject, but I faint at the side of blood. So definitely not a doctor, but love bio as a subject, ironically. Yeah, so I, I'm the same way too. So I wasn't the best, biggest fan of dissections and whatnot. Um, yeah. We actually couldn't do them in, in my school, funnily enough, uh, just given like the country that, that we were in at that time. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I was really interested in building things in the human body. And so I worked at the Veterans Affairs Hospital. There was a tissue engineering project at, at, at University of Michigan. Uh, and they actually encouraged a lot of students to go and do research, to go and try new things. And so I decided to give that a shot. I really enjoyed working there. Um, but I thought that the path to being an MD, PhD would be very long because you have to be a doctor and a PhD. And so I switched over. So this is why I got a little bit lucky, right? Uh, my school is very strong for many different kinds of engineering. And it just so happened that we're very strong for industrial engineering with all the cars, all the, I mean, it's, it's the University of Michigan, right? So it's really a car school. You've got the big three car companies knocking at the door. Uh, you have a lot of tremendous industrial places all around. Um, you know, you have a lot of recruiting that goes on for a lot of the top companies. I was very interested in, in airplanes and cars and the like. And so I switched over to industrial engineering. Um, I think the summer of the internship, so the summer between junior and senior years is where a lot of students get the internship, which they try and parlay into a full-time job offer, right? I think I had offers from a consulting firm, a bank, an oil company, a machinery company, Basically, any industry that was out there, they were like, we want you to come up with any Exactly. <laughs> and and but it was informed by the fact that, um, you know, I graduated in, in 2011. And so 2010 was that big summer internship. 2009 was the big recession. 
And so a lot of folks just applied to a lot of different things in that frenzy, I guess. Um, and so I was very interested in that. I was also on track to do a five-year master's at, at Michigan uh, and then Bob probably go into consulting. So one of the management managing consulting firms, right? Uh, that a lot of a lot of young students actually go and want to work for or go spend their whole lives, you know, preparing for. Uh, so I was on track for five year masters. I thought, okay, like let me work at a big bank that will set me apart from other folks who work doing industrial engineering at a power plant or at something else. And I actually enjoyed working at JP Morgan so much that I stopped doing my five year masters and then worked at JP Morgan full time. And so I joined a formal analyst program uh, in the city. It focused on many different parts of the bank, uh, everything from trading to sales, uh, to relationship management, to product. And I really enjoyed my time over there. There were 50 of us uh, coming from all over. I think the first day they made folks raise their hands uh, and ask how many of the folks in the incoming class were born in the state of New York, were actually born in, born in Manhattan Island, in all fairness. I think only one or two of those 50 were. And so it's an amazing opportunity, uh, amazing company, of course, uh, an amazing group of friends, uh, a lot of whom I'm still in touch with today. That is absolutely amazing. And I love how, how in a way, you slowly edge towards the world of finance in a sense. What do you think was like when at this point you, you didn't really, I mean, you probably took a couple of courses in finance, but you were majoring in something completely different. Mm -hmm. When you stepped into this this role in a bank, in this analyst program, trying out different things, what were the things that engaged you or made you feel like this is an amazing place, this is an amazing experience, I should stick to this? Yeah, I enjoyed the markets. So the markets itself are mathematical. The markets itself, you do need a Ooh, lot. Oh, the math side. Okay, okay, I see the connection. Yeah. Oh, sorry, continue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it's a fun, engaging game full of smart folks. Um, it's a lot like a school. So in fact, like my transition, funnily enough, I thought my transition to an MBA at Penn was a lot easier than a lot of other kids who'd come in from different backgrounds, even though I'm not from the US. It was quite a natural cultural as well as intellectual transition to move from you know, a job at a big bank uh, in the Northeast of the US into grad school. Uh, undergrad was a big transition, uh, as you can well imagine, coming to a new country. Uh, it's a very different culture. There's all the snow. There are a lot of folks in big state schools who come in with hundreds of friends from their high school. Uh, you know, like they've dreamt of coming to the school since they were five years old. And here I am picking the school out of a list, uh, not even knowing, you know, the history, the this, the that, not even visiting the state, right, before I'm coming in. And so, um, you know, I think... It was an interesting experience. My sister, funnily enough, actually also, she works in finance right now. Uh, she's done banking, she does private equity. She went to Wharton as well as an undergrad. And so I think that aspect of the markets, being able to talk about something, uh, we bounce ideas off each other all the time um, and bounce concepts and bounce news articles as well. Um, it's, it's a very engaging and rewarding feel, I think. Uh, and of course, like folks, hopefully, uh, at some stage get to manage their own money, which is also a very fun experience too. So I'm someone who constantly checks my phone, you see different things in the market, uh, you come up with new ideas. Um, and actually that led me into crypto quite easily. The interest in finance, the interest in technology, uh, the desire to see new things in the horizon, whether it's tissue engineering uh, or whether it's the next great thing in this field. 
uh, led me quite naturally actually to to Bitcoin and to crypto and to blockchain. So you see, like this paints the the prediction of crypto and blockchain as a much bigger deal in a sense, simply because you have a kind of history of predicting cool things. So again, teacher engineering, amazing, pioneering, groundbreaking. And then now like the next thing you pick obviously has to be equally cool and interesting and groundbreaking. So I see the connection, the tech, the mm -hmm. finance, the, the, the maths of the markets in a way. So I, I see how that aligns with your interest. When was the first time that you started being aware of crypto in general, in a sense, and, and starting to think, hmm, this is fascinating. I want to learn more about this in a sense. Because it's not something that was traditionally, or maybe it was about like when you were probably graduating and, and picking what career to do. So at what point in your career did you start getting a little interested, trying to figure out this field a bit more? Yeah, yeah. So um, around 2016, 2017, I'd heard about it before, uh, but I was working in a fairly conservative company. Uh, so a lot of folks, in fact, a lot of folks who graduate from Penn will work in industries where they have to ask permission before they trade stocks. Uh, for conflict of interest reasons, right? Like there's a lot of sensitive information that's in audit, auditing firms, consultancies, banks. And so, you know, you shouldn't be trading on that information. Uh, that made it very difficult to trade something like Bitcoin uh, and other cryptocurrencies because there was no way to ask your company because the asset itself was so new, right? You could ask the company, can I trade Apple stock? Because that was a common asset and maybe someone else is doing a deal in some other part of your company. And so you can create Apple stock, uh, but essentially it also didn't make it very satisfying. And if you think about it, if there's a deal being struck in some other part of the company, you may not be able to buy or sell a stock at a time. That sounds good, but if you're buying and selling a stock, and if you say you bought a stock and you're long that stock, right? If you don't have certainty about when you can sell it, it actually really destroys your uh, enjoyment and your, you know, like your uh, ability to trade effectively, right? Uh, that's quite a big uncertainty to place in. And all of these companies I've worked at predominantly are large global companies with a lot of different business units. And so I think that that's what prevented me from actually putting my own money uh, into crypto. Uh, our CEO, Jamie Dimon, was also very famously anti-crypto. I think he said something like, if I hear anyone's trading Bitcoin, I'll fire them, anyone who's so foolish. I mean, you can look up the exact quote. It was actually funny because the five of us or four of us at a desk, and I think three of us were trading, you know, Bitcoin um, through through like securities means. So we had to be, be able to ask the company whether we could trade it or not, and then we could trade it. Um, but it's an interesting kind of phenomenon. Uh, and obviously now it's all the rage. I was also going to grad school, so I was very drawn towards fintech. I went to grad school to move from a traditional finance job into something that was more innovative, into something uh, where I could take two years off and just network very aggressively. So I don't know if this is the right time for advice, um, but I tell everyone in school to use their school email address, use the fact that they're non-combatant really, right, uh, to network as much as they can. I mean, I think pretty much every day I try to reach out to one new person uh, to learn about what they do, to build a bond. You also don't have a job by definition. Um, maybe some of your classmates do, but most undergrads recruit, right? Um, maybe the next thing that they want to do is a job. Maybe the next thing they want to do is to go to grad school. There could be so many different alternatives. And so there's quite a good opportunity to learn more about the field uh, in a very, very safe space. You can also take two years off 
if you don't have daily deliverables at work, you can build theses, you can test new things, you can build prototypes, you can found your own company. There's so many amazing companies founded on Penn campus. And so I think those two years were for me to figure out what I want to do in FinTech. Um, but I had an inkling it would be in the blockchain and crypto space fairly early. No, that's amazing. And I think one of the, I love that point that you bring up about kind of using the time. I feel like as an undergrad, we have no idea what's happening in the experience of being an undergrad. It's like that the time just passes and you're like, oh gosh, well, what, what have I done? Have I really utilized this? And I feel like when you, like, at least from my, from what I heard, when you come back at an MBA, you're a lot more thoughtful of the time and you're a lot more kind of like, you understand that this is, yes, you're going for classes and all that, but that's just the, 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 the not even the cream on the or the, or the icing on the cake in a sense it's all of the other things that uh, we sometimes do naturally sometimes forget about at the undergrad level and mm -hmm. you are someone who did so many things as I said you had your VPs at multiple clubs you had a podcast you were very active in kind of the different opportunities how did you go about thinking what were the resources or more what were the experiences that would help you understand what you wanted to do better because again places like Penn there's so many opportunities and I'd argue that in most places there are many opportunities if we start looking and digging in for them so how do you pick or decide where you're going to spend your time yeah it's not easy I think it's actually easier as an undergrad because you do have four years oh yeah um, there's a grad school student a lot of grad schools are one year two years um yeah I guess some could be three four years um but I think there's some stuff that just calls out to you, right? So for instance, I love soccer. So joining a soccer club to me is one of the easiest things to do, right? Uh, there's some some of them you just got to dip your toe in the water and see how they how they pan out, right? Um, so I was involved a lot in the cocktail club in school. There's a chocolate club. I mean, a lot of random, you know, non-professional, uh, you know, just social, social clubs uh, that you get pulled into. Uh, sometimes your friend groups lead you to different clubs, right? Uh, sometimes a lot of folks, maybe a cultural club is very appealing. So I joined uh, Wharton's India Club, uh, as well as the Wharton India Economic Forum. So there could be other ones that are interesting, you'd like to learn more. Um, and so you, you get more involved with those. Uh, and of course, you know, like a lot of folks go for pre-professional and professional clubs, right? There's consulting clubs, there's finance clubs. Uh, but more than anything else, I think for a lot of them, yeah, indeed, for a lot of them, they're, they're very formal. You go to interviews, you see other people, you know, they, you, you dress up and you attend corporate sessions, uh, which is interesting. But I think for a lot of other clubs, they have a lot of fascinating events. They have events like conferences, very impressive conferences with tons of amazing speakers. So that's an interesting avenue. Podcasts is also another interesting way to engage the community outside of the school. Uh, alumni events, speaker events. And so it broadens the, the reach of Penn's campus. I think it was interesting that pre-COVID, uh, we'd have a lot of events on campus that was supposed to be the most engaging, uh, but a lot of alumni don't live on campus. And so very few clubs actually were effective at conducting, say, like a Zoom phone call with, say, like a venture camp partner sitting in SF. They weren't really doing that. They're waiting for folks to come in. And I feel like if we can bring in more people virtually, you increase the diversity, you bring in more people, uh, you create avenues to learn more about folks who may not be able to make it to Philadelphia, right? Um, and broaden your circle and broaden your network. And so it's actually interesting uh, that 
some events have been enriched actually by the virtual, um, by the forced virtual environment. And now that we come to a little bit more of an in-person thing, at least more so than the end of my school, which is you know, March and April, 2020, when the whole world is locked down, um, you can get the best of both worlds. Yeah, I'm actually quite proud. Like we, we had a blockchain session where we'd go to New York and just go from office to office with a lot of the big banks, a lot of the top companies, and that got canceled. And I think that was March, mid-March 2020. And so obviously like the, the, the start of COVID when a lot of people were getting very scared. And we moved it to a virtual one, which was very well attended. You know, uh, it was all virtual. So folks were able to join from all over the world. If they're stuck in Malaysia, they were able to join. Uh, and I thought it was a very interesting thing how everyone just switched so quickly from such a marquee in-person event where you say the offices. I mean, look, that stuff's cool too, right? Uh, to see people, to shake hands, to see the office, to walk around Manhattan is always fun. Uh, but I think uh, there, there, there's good and bad too for the opportunities and ways to interact in virtual ways that can be quite enriching as well. No, and I definitely agree with that simply because even right now, I, I one of the clubs I lead kind of organizes these, I, I wouldn't say necessarily virtual, but I would say international events where we are, we are intentionally making it virtual simply because we saw during the pandemic the ability to learn from so many more experiences simply because we weren't limited geographically in a sense. And we were able to connect with people who, for example, even in the US itself, San Francisco, Michigan, mm -hmm in different parts of the, in the states, in a sense, and of course, bringing people from across the world to exchange experiences and to learn from them. And that just gave us kind of like a much broader context to the work that we were doing. So even now, I feel like virtual events still as a place. I mean, of course, as you said, we love conferences and the door to door and, and nothing beats being there physically. But I feel yeah. like there is so much value in, in the virtual world. that We are all still at the very precipice of discovering it and, and experimenting with and now we can do it with a lot less stress and a lot less pressure yeah. that the pandemic is over. We can do it for fun, actually, more than because we have to. You you also did, like, as I said, so many different things, conferences, podcasts, in-person, virtual. Tell us about one or two experiences that taught you something about this fintech industry that you that we can't get from the books and, and, and the courses. I mean, books and courses are amazing, especially at Penn, out of this world. But what were the experiences that taught you something that was maybe slightly apart from that or, or, or that we can't find from just in theory or on campus? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the founders themselves are very approachable people. So you'd speak to people, you know, they'd be walking around on campus. Uh, they're multi-billionaires, but I don't know if this is like a blockchain-centric thing. They could have founded some of the largest coins and they come in and just speak at an event. And they're like the most unassuming folks you'd ever speak to. Uh, and a lot of them don't articulate absolute certainty about what they've done or what the direction that something is going in or not, which is kind of interesting. Um, I think that's permeating a little bit more into society, a little bit more humility. I think COVID really changed our view on what it means to be a corporate leader, on what it means to say, even like be in an office culture. Uh, I think it, it brought a lot of fairly good topics to the fore, especially around mental health, I think for everyone, regardless of where they were, um, you know, introverts, extroverts alike, I think 
being locked down or not being away, being away from family for many years um, and seeing a lot of the suffering that's been going on um, really changed a lot of perspectives. And so it's interesting to see um, how folks articulate and navigate uncertainty, even if you believe that they've created the coin or they've built the company or they've built an industry, um, it's interesting to see how they look at different trade-offs and how they look at uh, the future as well. I think there's enough humility to say that there's no real crystal ball as to where at this stage, right, the economy goes, uh, where all of these advanced technologies go. I mean, I've been hearing about, say, things like 3D printing being the next big thing for the last 10 years. Um, there's so many new things at the forefront um, that I would like folks to engage in. And so, and so and that leads into my second point that I would strongly encourage anyone on the campus, whether you're, you know, you don't have to be in engineering to engage in advanced technology. You can engage with this in many, many different ways. You can craft the story around it. You can help commercialize it. You can help, um, obviously in the medical and medical allied fields, there's so much interesting work that's been going on around say like protein folding mixed with supercomputers right uh you do need experts from many different fields uh, to weigh in on the different challenges uh both technological but also ethical i think even self-driving cars is such an interesting ethical question uh, the society <laughs> is, is grappling with right now right that's one then you see like Neuralink with elon musk uh, that's again a very very it's it's bi it's biology obviously it's it's advanced um, technology as well from a from a hardware standpoint but there's a very strong ethics component to it too and so I think the further that we go um, I would strongly encourage anyone on campus right now to just delve into one of one groundbreaking thing whether it's in their industry whether it's in, in something else uh, because something's bound to take off I know it's very tempting for a lot of folks to go and do banking, go and do consulting, uh, you prep for the interviews, and I think, you know, like you're done with it. I think that's awesome. Uh, but at the same time, if you can go to a company and say that I want to be a specialist in this specific field, oftentimes they might be able to accommodate you, maybe not on your first job, maybe not on your second job, but certainly on, on the third rotation or so. Uh, that's actually how I got my job in blockchain and my internship uh, specific to me. Uh, I said that I'm the blockchain guy. I want to jump blockchain. I can prove it out to you. Um, if you are able to accommodate that, you know, I'll work for you for my MBA internship. And uh, quite thankfully, the Bank of New York Mellon did. Um, and so I had a very interesting time working for them in the blockchain space over the past, uh, yeah, for about a year. That is very fascinating. I feel like because many times, People are rushing to sign up and apply for their internships. Again, maybe just an undergrad problem that I've seen, but but there's a lot of anxiety surrounding finding the right one, finding this, finding that. You you've kind of flipped the script on it in a sense where you've been very thoughtful in finding the one that matches what you want to learn and the career that you want to have. How do you have that conversation with the potential employer, with the potential um, provider of an internship in a sense? How do you? Number one, I probably have the courage on one end aspect of it, but how do you frame that conversation in a way of this is what I'm bringing to the table, this is what I'm hoping to learn, and this is what you'll get out of it? How did you do it? Yeah, yeah. So, certainly, there are certain industries where they want you to be generalists, right? If you're looking at yeah. a consulting firm, right? Mm -hmm. On purpose, they would like you to be a generalist for at least a few projects. Same thing with banking, I think it's slightly more specialized. 
Um, but a lot of the internship programs are generalist internship programs. They don't hire you for a specific job. Now, obviously, if you come in and, you know, oftentimes managers are just trying to figure out, like, who's interested in what, right? Mm-hmm. In all fairness, it may not make the most sense to put me on something in, I don't know, 3D printing, for instance, right? Uh, let's pick on 3D printing, right? It, mm-hmm. That's just not my thing. And so if there's a blockchain project, uh, and you're known to be that, and you're known to be interested, and you're known to be well-connected, and you're known to really be an authority in that field, it makes that decision a lot easier whenever there is flexibility. So in all fairness, a lot of the undergrad internship programs, I mean, gosh, when I was at JP Morgan, I think there were six or 700 interns uh, across the company, across the world, actually, right? Uh, yeah, doing yeah, yeah. some kinds of things. So obviously it's very difficult to accommodate a specific interest for each person in that time. But say you work there for a couple of years, you're very interested in certain area, network with the right people, you know, you learn about it, you're thoughtful at your job as well. Obviously you can't just ignore your job at hand. (laughs) Um, I think it creates an opportunity in that space to do something that's a little bit more specialized and a little bit more interesting. Um, I think generalist jobs are great too. I did a generalist job for many, many years, for several years actually before. Um, but to me at least, and maybe it's a personality thing, um, I want to be on the end. In fact, like truth be told, like once blockchain goes mainstream enough, uh, I will probably try and find that next big thing. So it will stop being interesting enough to you. You're like, I have to go find the next, uh, yeah. the next blockchain, yeah. the next big and exciting thing. Oh no, <laughs> okay. Then, then blockchain better appreciate you while they have you right now. Okay. Well, on, on that question, in a sense, one thing that you mentioned is very interesting is you have to establish yourself as, as either the blockchain guy or in whatever industry, the person you to go to in a sense in that industry. There are many components to kind of like building your personal brand around something, whether that be network, whether that be knowledge, experience. How would you rank those things in a sense? What would you say are the, maybe the top three things that you we have to think about in kind of building ourselves in a particular field, establishing ourselves as, as the authority in that field, even in a small yeah, yeah. So I would say knowledge is a given, like that has to be there, right? Oh, you like, can't cut that, you gotta have that, okay, okay. Yeah, so you have to you have to be knowledgeable, you have to follow a lot of trends. Uh, it's not easy. I think uh, it certainly was, at least in the space, much easier to be an expert maybe two, three years ago. Uh, when I was in grad school, a lot of folks who were approachable to me, um, you know, may not pick up a student's call right now, the same way that it's easier to get in touch with a founder in a smaller industry, it's easier to probably hang out with a lot of the tech multi-billionaires in 1993 than it is right now, right? That's just a reality of the space that, you know, sometimes folks manage companies with hundreds of thousands of people versus 30 people in a garage right? Or maybe not 30 in a garage, maybe 30 in a WeWork, three in a garage, right? Uh, That's the time to build those relationships. And so I I would say, so yeah, so knowledge, of course, Uh, next one is network. What I've also found is sometimes folks over index on meeting very senior managers. I actually go after a lot of folks, a lot of the most successful and best cold calls are folks who are maybe alumni, maybe folks who are just young professionals. Uh, They'll pick up the phone, they may be able to understand where you are in life, how the market works right now versus, you know, maybe it's outdated information. Because education changes a lot as well, right? Like going to Penn now versus going to Penn like 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, and I guess getting into Penn maybe 20 or 30 years ago from now, 
it's just such a different ball game. Even I've seen the college admissions for undergrad change so rapidly uh, for both Penn as well as Michigan. I'm an interview for actually both schools. Uh, so much them when I was applying to school, right? Like folks have so many accomplishments. They know so much about the school. Uh, there's so much information that's available online right now. And so I would say that's the next one, the network, uh, not necessarily with the most senior people. And I would say third is, and I'm not done this particularly effectively myself, truth be told, is a lot of folks are actually very good at getting their word out, whether it's a Substack, uh, yeah, of course, podcasts, you could have podcasts, uh, you could publish in a medium. So there are many different, Twitter is big in the crypto space as well. I've just not, like that's just not my personality. So I've not gotten too, too, too much of that. Uh, but I would encourage folks who that's authentic to, uh, to really uh, reach out and share the knowledge um, on a more public forum like that. Very, very good advice, I'd say. And I think all three of those are sailing across industry. So again, not just specific to crypto and blockchain, of course, very impactful than that. But also, mm -hmm. I think in anything, as you said, knowledge, network, and also kind of I wouldn't say publicizing it, but maybe sharing what we know a little bit and putting ourselves out there is definitely helpful. Mm -hmm. And and I think that that's good advice that we can all start implementing in a way or two in all of those areas in whatever we're doing. One of the very fascinating things is you also are very, I would say, you've got your finger on the pulse of, of the blockchain world, not just in your career, but in how it affects other people's careers or in other industries and all. You, as, as we talked about earlier, are a, a TA for one of the executive uh, education courses. You work with ADOs or executives in uh, through this course, in a sense, talking about blockchain and crypto. What have you seen the response been from uh, not necessarily uh, maybe people in crypto, but executives out there or people who are running different industries and in different companies in a sense we know that the conversation has definitely picked up in in recent years but from your point of view what are the things that have changed in people's perceptions what are people looking at now and what should they be looking at i can't answer what they should be looking at because <laughs> I, I i don't know if anyone knows i certainly don't um but no. um what are they thinking about so I think a lot of folks come from so many different fields. So finance, I think, is one of the first ones, right, to be impacted by Bitcoin, by cryptocurrency. When you have this giant trillion dollar asset class, right, or half a trillion, depending on the price of Bitcoin, but you could have a half a trillion, trillion dollar asset with no founder, with no company, with no CEO, which can move money across borders, you know, and, and, and it, like quite quickly, right? and fairly inexpensively so it's it's a very interesting value proposition it's very different um people are organizing themselves in very different ways uh society itself could organize itself in a way uh that's it's fairly different uh you're looking at a confluence and i think all of these things had to come together you mean game theory you have technology you have finance you have trends where people may want something where you don't have to trust a centralized party there are many different trends coming together that I think created Bitcoin. Uh, and then Bitcoin, of course, there are so many other kinds of digital assets nowadays um, that are being created, like a lot of things like stable coins, which are supposed to be linked to a fiat currency. You can have NFTs, uh, so non-fungible tokens. So instead of having, you know, like one Bitcoin is the same as another Bitcoin, the same way that one dollar is the same as another dollar, you could have unique properties ascribed to a certain uh, NFT non-fungible token. 
you have central banks coming in, you have other unique digital currencies who are trying to be a, a layer for the new internet, uh, which is the whole Web3 movement. And so I think it affects different industries in different ways and where at different points of maturity uh, with each one. It's still very early. Uh, if you know a lot of folks uh, look at the internet and say you know, the internet was built in the early 90s, uh, although a lot of the technology for the internet was built in the 60s, uh, actually at, at UPenn. Um, so sometimes it takes time for things to mature. Um, the most optimistic graphs I see in the crypto space, and of course there's a lot of optimism in general, I think within the crypto space, regardless of what the prices are, uh, are around the adoption of the internet, right? How long it took to get to a billion people, um, how long certain other technologies take to permeate through society. So a very fascinating graph is to see how long it took for uh, telephones, for refrigerators to start at zero. You have a few early adopters and then all of a sudden everyone has, you know, an AC or a fridge or a phone or basic stuff today that you can't imagine people were without. Um, and that was the internet, to be honest. I think there was a time when the internet was somewhat optional. Uh, and now today I think folks are arguing that, you know, like a phone line or internet line is up there with electricity in terms of how much people use it and how much people nowadays especially need it for their job, need it to study, need it to communicate, socialize, be part of a connected world. Uh, and that trend is not slowing down. So I think uh, what, to, what to look out for is always very subjective. I always encourage people to invest in things that they understand uh, the same way that I you know, would not pick something uh, that I wouldn't understand uh, to to buy, like I can have no conviction in selling something to someone else. I have no conviction in it, right? Uh, the same thing to themselves, right? Like you have to understand Apple stock. If you're buying Apple stock, I feel it's the same way for cryptocurrency that you have to understand these are, a lot of cryptocurrencies are very volatile um, and could be fairly risky. And so I'd always encourage folks to do their research, whether it's Apple stock or whether it's you know, the, the latest crypto that their 12 year old niece told them about. <laughs> okay, uh, listen to your 12 year old nieces. That's a also partial takeaway from this. But other than that, I think that is very salient advice. And I think coming back to as we wind down this conversation, mm -hmm. I think for some people, they feel like they've missed the crypto boat or, or the, they've missed the blockchain boat in a sense where they heard about it before, they didn't really take any initiative. And then now that it's blown up, they're like, oh no, I should have, I should have gone in, I should have thought about it, I should have learned more. Is it too late to learn about these things? And if it's not, where do we start? There's so many resources, so much information going out there. Where if I want to learn about this, any of our listeners want to go in and say, I have nothing, no knowledge about crypto and, and blockchain, but I want to start today. Where's this beginning point? Yeah, yeah. So as for your first question, have I missed the boat? No, the same way that a lot of folks might have thought that the dot-com bust, right? Uh, the yeah. dot-com boom and bust was the end of the internet uh, when, you know, actually today you have several multi-trillion dollar tech companies um a lot of them in the states actually some of them have pen ceos and founders right um like google um and, and the like right uh and so it's not like i wouldn't say it's i wouldn't say it's too late uh in every industry there'd, there'd be winners and losers as long as there's a premise as to why something exists and can make money and is useful to society and is you know um not risking its own operation um it should exist at least in my opinion and you know continue on and and, and add value 
And so I think that that's, that's the first piece. Uh, as for the next one around, um, I think your next question was around uh, where this thing is headed. Uh, it's not it's not easy uh, to forecast a lot of these things out. It's not easy for some people to be in a volatile industry. Uh, the same way that you know not all people should buy certain stocks. Maybe it's best if they give it to someone else who might be an expert in that. If that's not their area of interest, their expertise, their risk tolerance, um, maybe their own risk tolerance is different from what their risk tolerance should be. In which case, you hand over the wheel to someone. Right. The same way. And listen, like we do this right now, right? Like we don't fly planes ourselves. We hand it over to someone who might be an expert in it, right? That's a good point. That's a good point. I wouldn't go and fly every plane or, or drive every vehicle that I want to yeah, get on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so um, I think, I don't think people should feel as though they've missed out. Uh, there's still billions of people who've never heard of cryptocurrency or don't use it on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, Again, like I'm not someone who's extremely bullish and thinks this is the only way and this is the best way. I think it's promising. Um, but I also encourage folks to look at other things as well. Look at what's going on in society. Look at other interesting technological, societal, economic, uh, sociological as well innovations that go on. Um, and I think that that's what really excites me. Yeah, I came from a very traditional background. You know, I work seven years at a big bank, went to Wharton Business School. Um, but I think now the school has given me an opportunity uh, to test different new things, give me a lot of classmates who work in these sectors. Uh, you can tap them on the shoulder and ask them, you know, uh, what to do. A lot, lot of folks, by the way, tap me on the shoulder and ask me what to do. Uh, that's what you get when you have a reputation of being someone very interested in a space that's a very niche space. Um, but at the same time, uh, you have this amazing network of folks who are more than happy to help you out to give you that first little push. Uh, so that's one. What if you don't have that? All the information is there online. I think curating it and spending that time is uh, a little challenging. It's very challenging, actually. So find some reliable sources. Uh, you have Messari, you have The Block, uh, so M-E-S-S-A-R-I, uh, The Block, just one word. They're different resources, the same way that in finance you have Reuters and Bloomberg and a lot of you know a lot of these uh, well-known reputed names. Crypto has its own reputed names. Uh, what I do avoid signing up for, and unfortunately, crypto is a controversial thing. Uh, there are a lot of fairly biased opinions. A lot of folks who own a lot of cryptocurrency who may have one opinion because they own a lot of a certain asset. You could say the same for like folks who own Tesla stock, right? Maybe they, yeah. right? And so it's a similar kind of phenomenon, perhaps. Um, and so a lot of the news articles sometimes are not very appealing to me uh, from the fairly mainstream news, news sources. Um, but I would say that uh, there are different ways to engage as well. So if there's an interesting project you're interested in, you can get onto Discord or Telegram, uh, which are most commonly used in the crypto industry. Uh, you go to Medium. Um, you can find some interesting sub stacks as well if you're into that and want to subscribe to a particular author and support them as well. Um, I know A16Z Crypto School is something that other folks encourage. And I guess, yeah, you could also sign up for Wharton's um, EMBA class if, if that's something that interests you too. <laughs> okay, yeah. Very, like, very good pursuits so channels of pursuits and i like how you are relatively unbiased in this in, in a way in a sense and, and that's actually very
very solid advice of where to get started from an unbiased opinion. I like that. Um, thank you for being on the show. I think I personally am a little bit more interested to learn about the space. I'm a little bit more interested in, in growing my own in career in the field that I'm in. And I really appreciate your advice. You're obviously a very thoughtful uh, person in, in the way that you craft your career and the way you interact with those around you. So I really appreciate you coming on the show, talking to us in a sense, and, and giving a little bit of that wisdom to our current students and, and people like me who are probably just starting to figure out what to do, where, like where we should get started in the things that we're working on. So thank you so much for your time. And I really appreciate you being on the show. And if there's thank any you. other way that I was going to reach out, I please do hope that they do. Sounds good. Thank you. This is awesome. All right. And with that, I guess our show for today shall come to a close. We shall wrap it up for today. And to our audience, thank you once again for joining us today on the show. We always enjoy having you with us in these conversations. So make sure you let us know how you felt in the comments, like, subscribe, do all of that stuff and reach out if you have any questions or if there's any other fields, topics, things that you want to explore. And with that, it's us signing off. Bye. You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio.